Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to Rational Security, the Let's All Go Dark edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I think I have a little bit of allergy, so forgive me in advance if I sound a little cotton-mouthed or not my usual peppy self. I probably think I'm pretty peppy most of the time. I just sound peppy. Sound good. I sound okay? Yeah, you sound all right. Well, I hope I don't offend anybody at home. Uh, It's allergy season for me right now. I don't know. Uh, I'm joined, as always, with my friends, Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. Are you suffering from seasonal allergies? Not symptoms? at all, and I think you sound great. Oh, thank you very much. And my friend, Ben, with us. Hello, Ben. Cheerio. You sound great. Thank you. <laughs> um, this week on the show, we have a lot to talk about, and some fun security things are happening as we speak. Maybe we'll get to those later. Um, FBI Director Jim Co- Jim Comey goes to the Hill to talk about going dark. It's going to be a theme in our discussion this week. Former officials are expressing concern about the Iran deal, and the Office of Personnel Management put people who had no experience in computer security in charge of protecting the hacked agency's computers. Big great surprise, idea. yeah. Great. <laughs> Not great personnel management on that one. Um, ben, why don't we start with your wordplay? So Jim Comey is on the Hill today for a uh, two different committees' testimony. Uh, one of them, the Intelligence Committee, is ongoing right now as we speak. This is Wednesday, yeah. Uh, the other one this morning was in front of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee where he gave a, uh, you know, pretty impassioned uh, argument that we have a real problem on encryption. Now, this is an issue that, uh, you know, is 20 years old at some level, uh, in the relationship between the Bureau and the tech and civil liberties community. But more recently, um, you know, has sort of resurfaced over the last, uh, you know, nine months as Comey and others in the government have gotten very worried about uh, Apple and Google's decision to make uh, data encrypted by default on devices and also to encrypt data in motion. And uh, Comey, this started, uh, Comey is on a bit of an offensive in this, and he started by making some remarks to CNN a couple of weeks ago, and then, uh, you know, he and I had a conversation about it last week that I wrote about at some length on Lawfare. He responded by uh, writing his own piece on the subject on Lawfare, uh, which has uh, gotten a lot of uh, response from civil libertarians. And Senator and, Wyden, too. And then a friend from Senator Wyden. And then he's up on the Hill today. Um, I was surprised at how warm his reception was on this point, even from Democrats whom I would not necessarily have expected to be sympathetic to the argument. 
Uh, he also said some, I think, uh, pretty substantially newsworthy things. One of them uh, is saying just very bluntly that there is encryption being used that he cannot break, mm. and that it is that he's saying that at risk of uh, empowering the bad guys and giving them tips. But you know, there is uh, default encryption on some of these systems that they cannot deal with. Um, then the second thing is uh, his allegation, which was not made with respect to specific companies, that some companies are not able to decrypt signal in response to lawful wiretap orders, but that some companies simply are refusing to uh, cooperate. Uh, and uh, that produced a, an interesting exchange with some of the senators who wanted him to name names and and provide chapter and verse on that. And so it'll be interesting to see whether uh, members of the Judiciary Committee are, uh, you know, what their, what data the FBI is able to provide them on that and how they respond to it. Uh, so all in all, I would say, uh, you know, this is a big uphill battle for the Bureau. Uh, you know, they're fighting against the unified position of the civil liberties and tech communities. Uh, on the other hand, Comey has had a very good week, and uh, I think he's clearly, you know, made some inroads on the Hill, uh, despite uh, despite the hard slog that they're going to have on this. You know, I'm curious because you say it's an uphill climb, um, but it doesn't sound as though any of the committee members were representing those constituencies um, from your description of the hearing. And it, it also doesn't sound like, I mean, the reason it's an uphill climb, as far as I understand, based on our previous discussions of this issue, is that fundamentally consumers want control and companies are bowing to that um, by giving them control rather than giving the FBI control. And the civil liberties groups are kind of, you know, jumping on that bandwagon, but it's a market-driven, consumer-driven bandwagon, right? So is, you know, is, has something changed about that? Do, is consumers' calculus changing, or do they just not care that much? So I don't think it's a consumer-driven bandwagon. I think it's a company-driven bandwagon. The companies have a problem in the wake of Snowden, which is how do you show that you're not in the pocket of, of the U.S. government. Right, but that and, matters to them because consumers don't want them to be in the pocket of the right, U.S. Right, it matters, it matters because they perceive, I have not seen a consumer groundswell of, for default encryption. Um, on the other hand, the companies are clearly worried about, uh, you know, providing as much assurance to their consumers as they can, particularly their overseas consumers, that they're not you know, part of the, you know, U.S. military industrial intelligence complex. Internet complex. Internet complex, yeah. And so, uh, um, I, you know, there were senators, particularly Mike Lee, um, uh, who were uh, very skeptical. Al Franken, too. And Al Franken, yeah. Um, and I was surprised, however, that there were as many that seemed friendly to Comey's position as there were. I still think it's not, legislation is not a doable thing right now, more because of the House than the Senate. But I, I think, you know, the FBI has clearly been 
combing the hill and talking to people quietly, and you could see the results of a lot of prep work. You in, could in in that hearing today. There were and there were references to the senators saying references to things that they had heard in classified sessions and in other briefings. The thing that I'm sort of I'm so frustrated by and as a reporter as well is that I don't hear the solution coming for, or the proposal coming so much from the FBI as to, okay, well, what is the thing that you want to do? Is this a, we need to amend CALEA? Do we need a new law? And it's, and it's sort of all done in the spirit of, I know they're saying we want to spur on discussions about potential solutions, but then all that the privacy and civil liberties community hears, and I think this is, they're rightly skeptical on some of this, is you want to build a backdoor. Or you want to basically create backdoor surveillance, which is just going to become a backdoor that hackers could use too. And I don't hear the FBI having a great answer to that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Ben, what do you think? I mean, you know, and your discussions with folks on this too. I mean, what is the solution they're driving for? And what is the, you know, how are they going to guard against making these systems less secure if that we're going down the road of having backdoors? Right. So I think the, first of all, the Bureau is very allergic to the term backdoor. Yeah. I'm not sure. That came out in the hearing, too, right. even though the, the Deputy Attorney General then proceeded to give an explanation that looks a lot like a backdoor. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what the significance of the front door, backdoor terminological right. distinction right. is. But what the Bureau, um, the Bureau really does not like the term backdoor, and I think that's because of the baggage of the crypto wars from the 90s yes. and, and the clipper chip controversy. But, in addition, they are hampered by the fact that the president uh, has not taken a position on this, and therefore they cannot ask for legislation. Uh, and so the Justice Department, and you saw that in today's hearing, the Justice Department, though they're testifying that there's a problem and there needs to be a solution, they are specifically not asking for legislation at this point. So it's a very awkward posture for them to be in vis-a-vis Congress. Uh, look, if you put together the things that the Bureau and the Justice Department are saying, what it sounds like they want is for the companies to maintain some ability to produce signal in response to lawful process, right. signal that's intelligible. And uh, that means that the companies, presumably, each would have to have some way of doing that. Now, some of them do like Google for, you know, stuff that's in the cloud. And some of them, like Apple, really don't. Um, but I think the, I think the government's position, at least insofar as I understand it, is they don't want to dictate the standards. They just want to know that when they give somebody a search warrant, the results of it, or a wiretap warrant, the results of it will be interpretable. And I think ultimately they're being coy. They do want legislation requiring yeah. that. So that's the only but, way you're going to get that. But yeah. they're not allowed to say it. Yeah. Well, it, it. So why hasn't the president taken a view on this? And and if he hasn't, if it's still under debate within the administration, why is the FBI out front on this? Well, the FBI. I mean, because generally speaking, when government has sort of vague preferences but they can't articulate them, they're not going to get them. They're just not. So why are they bothering? So it's a really interesting question why they're bothering. And I think uh, it's significant that today it was not just Comey. It was also, you know, Sally Yates, the deputy attorney general. So the Justice Department is on board, at least as yeah. far as there's a problem, we need a solution. 
look, the FBI director is only sort of a member of the administration. He's going to outlast this administration. And I think uh, Comey feels an obligation to advise people that there is a problem that's going to impede a lot of federal investigations, in his view. And I think he is worried about what happens when something bad happens and people say, why didn't, weren't you able to stop exactly. this? And I think he wants to create a very clear record uh, that more and more signal is not available to them and things that we expect them to do aren't doable. And I, you know, I that think... That sounds, I mean, maybe I'm being too cynical here, but it sounds to me like that's what you do when you've lost the internal policy battle and you're trying to CYA. Uh, no, I, I think that's probably... Says the former administration. I think Just saying. I think that's probably a little bit unfair. I think he's winning the internal policy battle, but he's winning it very slowly. A um, few months ago, he was the only person talking about it. Now the deputy attorney general is talking about it at a hearing. You know, I, I think they're, they, they are making progress within the administration, but there's a lot of interests, and I think they want the record very clear, um, maybe so that the next time there's a Boston bombing or yeah. something, you know, and the politics change, they will be in a position to, uh, you know, to do something about it. I suspect he also has a lot, uh, many more backers than we realize in the military and in the intelligence community who cannot come out and publicly talk about this, because... You can imagine the optics of the NSA director coming out and saying these things that Comey is saying, even though, you know, Mike Rogers certainly appreciates this problem to the extent that there are ISIS communications that they cannot decrypt or that there are, you know, terrorist or transnational criminal communications that they cannot decrypt, which there certainly must be. Like, there has to be some percentage of stuff that they just cannot read. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, what struck me about, and I agree with, with you, Ben, that he got a pretty warm hearing. He got less of one, I think, at the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, which is actually going on now as we're speaking, but I'm reading some updates on it, and, you know, he's getting a lot of crap from Wyden and, you know, a little bit more aggressive questioning. I, think. I shouldn't say crap, but I mean, that may, I mean, he's getting um, a lot of tough questioning uh, from him. But, you know, Comey said more today about the issue than he has said previously, and he said more, I think, even in the PC wrote for lawfare than he said previously, which I think was generally good because his position up to now seemed to be largely directed at the iPhone and kidnapping, and uh, he wasn't widening the aperture, I think, sufficiently to, to really give an appreciation for why this is as big of a problem as he claims it is. Well, and to be, you know, one thing he made clear last week is that the situation is changing very fast because of ISIL. And that, you know, things that were theoretical six months ago are not theoretical anymore. And that ISIL really has developed a pattern. You recruit people on Twitter and then you move them very quickly into encrypted chat apps, um, where they really have impaired visibility. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to, uh, your wordplay tomorrow. Sure. Well, um, some of you may have seen news stories about uh, this public statement on U.S. policy toward the Iran nuclear negotiations that was released a little over a week ago by 
uh, a group of formers, as we call them here in mm -hmm. Washington, people who were American diplomats, uh, American lawmakers, American senior list. officials. I was not on this list, but um, notably, it was a bipartisan group, uh, but there were a about a half dozen people who signed this statement who served in the Obama administration, some of whom worked directly on the Iranian nuclear negotiations when they were in the administration, people like Gary Seymour um, or Bob Einhorn, uh, our colleague here at Brookings. And the news reporting on this statement um, was, you know, sort of saying, well, look, even these former Obama administration officials are expressing their concerns about where the negotiations are going and what the agreement that's coming out of them seems to look like. And indeed, the statement does say, you know, it lays out five key elements that, in this group's view, the emerging nuclear agreement must provide for in order to deter and dissuade Iran from building a nuclear weapon. And that it explicitly says, without these features, many of us will find it difficult to support a nuclear agreement with Iran. So it seemed almost to be kind of throwing the gauntlet down to the administration and saying, we former administration officials, if we don't see these things in the agreement, are going to come out against you. And so I understand the news reporting, but it strikes me that that's a very kind of Washington politics way of looking at this statement. Um, and that there's another way to look at it, too, that I didn't see in any of the news coverage, and that's why I wanted to bring it up today. The alternative Wait, so the, the news coverage seemed to indicate, well, the, these are people who are in a way undermining the administration or suggesting that it's not working hard enough or it's not getting a good enough outcome. Um, but the other way to think about this statement is its impact not here inside the Beltway on the debate over the Iran deal, but its impact in Vienna where the deal is still being negotiated. And by having a half dozen former Obama officials along with uh, former congressman, uh, you know, former national security advisor and a bunch of other folks to have them come out with this detailed statement saying, these are the things we need to see in this deal in order to support it. And these are things that the Iranians have been resisting fiercely, like really strong monitoring and verification measures, um, strong provisions related to possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program, things like that. Um, in a way, it strengthens the U.S. hand in Vienna by allowing the administration to say to the Iranians, look, even our friends won't support a deal if you don't do these things. And so if we don't get these things, this deal won't pass Congress. It will not happen. Therefore, you must give us more. So I think it's, you know, it's a very, it's an interesting kind of inside-outside divergence where here in Washington in the domestic debate, it looks bad for the administration, but out there in the foreign policy world, it could actually be good for the administration. I mean, you know, could you see, I mean, is, do you think it's possible that they telegraphed ahead of time the administration they were going to do this? I mean, what would the protocol even be? Would, would they give the administration the heads up that they're going to write a letter, a public letter like this? Well, it, um, there's a little note prefacing the statement saying that this bipartisan group has been meeting regularly and that it has often benefited from the input of current administration officials. So that suggests that there's some consultation back and forth, whether they actually called up the White House and said, hey, we wrote the statement. We, you know, we want to know what you think of it or or maybe just, hey, we wrote the statement, we want you to know a half an hour ahead of the press yeah, corps. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know whether they did that. But uh, but I think either way, 
um, the, the net effect for the administration would be the same. I mean, say the White House had had a heads up or a chance to comment. These guys are all of, pretty much all of them have been on record in a variety of ways over the last months. Um, on all of the things that are in this statement. So I don't think any of it would be a surprise to them. The only thing that makes it newsworthy is that it's the group of them all together saying So basically this. they're collectively playing the role in American domestic politics that the supreme leader is playing in Iranian politics. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, we don't have a supreme leader, but we've managed to find a way to stiffen the administration's spine anyway. What's your best guess on what on, on the prospects for the deal at this point? I mean, we are now eight days past the original deadline. They can keep pushing the deadline, obviously, but what's your sense of where this is going to end up? Yeah, I mean, this is incre- This is really down to the wire, and it's down to the wire not because of tactics. It's down to the wire because there are some big things that the the Iranians uh, haven't agreed to that the P five plus one really want. Um, and it goes to the heart of the issues raised in this letter. Um, the whole question of allowing IAEA inspectors uh, to get quick access and real access to any sus- suspect site, um, that's something we heard from the Supreme Leader a week or so ago. No way, can never, never you let know, you in our military Never sites. let you in our military sites. Uh, and it's a deal breaker for the P5 plus one as well. And so... You know, this is down to the wire because the gaps are still there and they haven't closed. Uh, and I think the only way they would close at this point is if the Iranians visibly cave on a, on a couple of these issues. And what they would get in exchange for that is probably some softening of the P5 plus one position on sanctions relief, which will not make uh, critics of Iran in the West happy at all, but for the sake of getting these inspections and restriction provisions in place, it might be worth it. Do you sound cautiously hopeful about it? You know, I guess the one thing you can say about these kinds of extended negotiations is they don't get this far unless both sides really are serious about making a deal. There's no shadow boxing going on here. Um, But when you get this close and the gaps are still there, the only way you close them is leaders who are willing to take a risk. And that means, at the end of the day, the Supreme Leader has to uh, has to make the choice he's been avoiding making for the last decade plus, uh, which is whether he's willing to pay any substantive price in terms of Iran's nuclear options for the sake of better relations with the international community and, and a better economic future for his country. Uh, so maybe somehow they thought they could get this deal without paying a substantive price, but it's now very clear that they can't. And... Uh, and there's this is momentous how that choice is decided. It's momentous for Iran's future. It's mo- momentous for the future of regional security. It's going to be a big week or weekend. Yeah, and of course, if they don't get this deal done, we know that Congress will have twice as much time to review it when it finally does get concluded. So there's a lot of pressure on the negotiators to get it done this week. I would imagine that probably our negotiators are. <laughs> letting the Iranian reminding them of that. Oh, you really hourly. Want to wait, you really want to wait twice as long <laughs> for the Republican-controlled Congress to review this deal? Yeah, yeah. they ain't stupid. Um, okay, so my wordplay this week is um, some very enlightening testimony uh, by the Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Personnel Management. Poor OPM. Poor, poor OPM. Are we supposed to feel bad for them? No. <laughs> 
terrible OPM. Bad OPM. They still haven't notified me, but I'm just working on the assumption that all my data has been hacked. That's right. I have noticed, by the way, it seems like more career people were getting notified than political appointees. I don't know if that had any connection to it. Do you feel bad about not having been notified? I mean, do you, you mean feel, do I feel like less of a player? Yeah. Um, that that if that if if like you'd really been someone, the Chinese would have your stuff. Oh, they have. No, stuff. I assume they have my stuff, and and it's just OPM who's not letting they me know. They had your stuff before. <laughs> oh, so so you, were, you, you were you yeah. were so important that they took it without letting OPM know. <laughs> <laughs> it was took part of the stuff. secret operation. Yeah, me and several million other people, apparently. Um, so yeah, so OPM Inspector General, who is up on the Hill testifying Wednesday afternoon, um, had this just terrific and concise uh, report on the absolutely woeful history of information and computer security at the Office of Personnel Management, including deficiencies that he said, in his word, continue to haunt the agency today. Wow. Uh, among some of the highlights were um, that there were 11 different computer systems that had not been given the top-to-bottom security check that the OMB requires before you, you know, go hook it up and put stuff in it. <laughs> um, that's bad. Two of those systems are used by the Federal Investigative Service, which is the part of the OPM that conducts background investigations. Um and also that there was, a, I love this word, decentralized uh, cybersecurity policy, which is to say that nobody in, char- in OPM was actually in charge of cybersecurity. Also that all passwords were password123. Password <laughs> but they didn't have a capital P. Yeah. <laughs> and the O was a zero. Um, and that the office that was nominally in charge of cybersecurity does not have any people in it who are experts in cybersecurity. And in fact, many people who were tasked on paper with doing cybersecurity were actually doing other jobs too. So you might be somebody who was putting in a retirement uh, application into a computer system, and it was your job not only to put in the application, but you were also the person who was technically in charge of the security for the system. And, you know, I... Oh, you know, all those security geeks, they don't even really speak English, so why, you know, they just speak tech, so why should we have them do security? Well, they should have just outsourced it. I mean, you know, I think actually they did outsource some <laughs> things to China. Um, but this got me thinking about, like, you know, I mean, back to Ben, your earlier point on this, that, you know... Do we actually blame OPM, right? I mean, so the question here is, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, this Inspector General report makes very clear that there's nobody in the OPM that knows the first damn thing about computer security. And you wouldn't expect that there necessarily would be in an office that's in charge of human resources. Much less anybody who knows anything about the intelligence collection priorities of adversary nations. Right. But what I also found interesting was the extent to which, you know, you had people who were just simply disregarding what was the stated policy and the guidance, the direction from, you know, from the administration. So the, a number of these important systems that had not been given the proper scrubbing that every system across government is supposed to get, OPM made the decision on its own to delay that because it was in the midst of a broad overhaul of the entire enterprise of the agency and that they were just going to wait until those systems were online and do the checking of them. Well, you know, these things take years to complete, and in the meantime, you're vulnerable. And that's expressly not allowed 
in the guidance. So you had leaders of the agency, whether they were expert in cybersecurity or not, actively disregarding their instructions from the head office. Boy, that never happens. Never. Ever. Ever. Um, it just, it really, I mean, I don't know what, what, the, what the outcome of this particular hearing is going to be, but it just, it does strike me that still no one has been fired over this. Right. Can so we... look, <laughs> there, there are two issues here, and I think, at least two, and I think they're distinct, right? One is the question that I raised last week, which is, you know, if we take it that this data is a major intelligence target and that its loss is a very significant counterintelligence failure, it does not stand to reason that OPM should be in charge of flagging that or protecting itself against, you know, the Chinese or the Russians or, you know. But the second issue is should a federal agency with systems of any sort be required and be expected to engage in very basic cyber security hygiene stuff like the stuff that you're talking about. And there I can't imagine why every any federal agency at this point does not have, you know, routine cybersecurity yes. staff of people who are trained to, you know, make sure your password isn't password one, two, three. But isn't this of a piece with the federal government's lag on technology and using technology that's been the case ever since computers first came into government? I mean all of these agencies, I remember the State Department in like the 2000s did not have internet access yeah. on desktop computers. You had to like go down the hall into a special room to use the internet connected computers. They used mainframes at the State Department. Yeah. Into Our the embassies ch- didn't have email. Right. So, yeah. you know, the federal government and, and bureaucracies generally are slow to adapt to change and um, and all of those personnel that OPM is in charge of, of uh, don't like learning new things because it's extra work for them. And so this is just of a piece with that overall attitude. And how do you get this lumbering federal government to adapt basic IT hygiene, as you put it? I think that's a really good way of putting it, you know. Is it just generational? Are we going to have to wait for a whole new generation of bureaucrats who grew up with basic IT hygiene to be able to do this? I mean, look, I, I, I know this is something that a lot of agencies in the federal government have struggled with, but I'm honestly, my patience for it is somewhat limited. It's, um, it's an area where uh, the parts of the government that need to do it well do it well. You know, the Defense Department has good acquisition of technology and exploitation of technology because soldiers need it. Um, and the, um, you know, NSA is a very capable um, actor in this space, very, you know, unusually capable. So I, I just don't actually believe that governments can't do it. I think it's a question of um, it's a question of really wanting to, and it's a question of empowering uh, people with the authority and the resources to enable them to do it and demanding the right results and holding people accountable. And that's where, you know, the point that nobody here has lost their jobs is a significant one. It's not what they're being evaluated against. I think, you know, I, I spent the early part of my career writing about chief information officers in government, writing largely about civilian career technology workers. 
and you know it, it's it, people who want to do want to do a good job but they are sort of up against you know a number of impediments and one of them frankly and this gets really into the weeds is the procurement process the fact that you know it takes a long long time to procure systems frequently they were getting stuff that was outdated um, nobody ever took really i think seriously the idea of using the government's purchasing power to force companies to deliver more secure products and generally speaking, this the whole universe of technology in the civilian agencies was just kind of like handed off from the level of senior policy level people to career employees who get a bad rap anyway, and they're kind of ignored. And it's ah, you know, the GS 15s and the SES guys, and man, and just and it really was that you got the feeling covering technology in, at that in the early 2000s that it was something that was not a policy priority at all for the right. White House. It was just like, oh, the career people handle that. And it was that kind of just like dismissive attitude of the way that we deal with like, oh, the tech people handle that in a company. And I think that when you don't, in a bureaucracy the size of the federal government, when you do not have, you know, pressure and focus coming from the level of the top of the senior policy people and taking it seriously, that does not permeate. And you get very mixed results uh, in the way that this stuff is implemented. I mean, the Homeland Security Department was getting near-failing grades for years on its own cybersecurity. This is the department that is in charge with implementing a national cybersecurity program. And so there's just there's a lot of talk at the, at the top level about the national need for defending us against the Chinese and our intellectual property and keeping the power grid protected. And that just does not translate into sort of the career ranks of the federal government, at least in the civilian side. And I think you see that at OPM. Do you think that this disaster will be a tipping point? I think it is, yeah. And I think that this is, at, at this point, I don't see how anyone in this administration or in another can not make information security across the government in all agencies a huge priority now. I mean, I think that was, you could maybe have made the case a few years ago of, well, why does the OPM need to have the same level of protection that an intelligence agency would. It's like, well, because it's a giant intelligence target. And you can't get away from that now. But this is not going to require new legislation. What this is going to require is, is real action and push from the top. But sustained. I mean, this cannot just be a, you know, where they have this 30-day sprint team, I think they've set up now. It's like, oh, we're going to take this really seriously for 30 days and get things under control. There's got to be a cultural shift. And it requires people who run federal departments and agencies who are political appointees and their deputies and others who might be career all appreciating the extent to which they could be the weak link in the entire chain. And it, and it requires agency heads part of how we evaluate their job performance mm -hmm. to be how well their systems did or did not work. And, you know, the idea that, you know, we saw this with the healthcare website where being the head of HHS turned out to mean, in part, could you run a website, right? And, right. you know, being the head of OPM turns out to mean, can you protect data with, you know, basic cybersecurity hygiene? And we need to think about each of, part of running the FDA um, is protecting all the commercial secrets that, drug companies are giving to the FDA as part of investigative new drug approvals. Nobody's evaluating the head of the FDA right. on the basis of how much material is being stolen 
uh, on that basis, and I would argue that partly they should be. Yeah. yeah, although that raises an interesting point because, of course, agency heads typically are not evaluated. Political appointees, they're not evaluated in their jobs. Nobody gives them an annual review. They get evaluated for the job, and then if if they screw up, they get fired, like the head of HHS, and that's that's it. Well, that's a form of evaluation. Right, but it's always after something awful has happened right. before. Well, I will be surprised if Catherine Archuleta is in her job by the end of the month. Yeah, the OPM director. All For right. Those who don't know, Shane is on record. Yeah, I'm putting I'm, I'm putting on a marker. End of the month, before the end of the month, she's gone. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, would you like to share with the class first? Well, we have a Tammy and I have a joint object lesson today, <laughs> and you, I want all the listeners to imagine a ship sinking. A small with, ship. A very small ship. Too small. <laughs> we were in a boat wreck this weekend. Um, we were going to... You a, look remarkably um, well. We, we all, dried off. All, oh, yes. <laughs> all people on board the boat, including two very small, very scared children, were fine. But uh, a number of electronic objects, including three personal computers, two cell phones, and a tablet were destroyed by when the boat was swamped with large saltwater waves. And uh, Did you know that saltwater conducts electricity really well, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> this is a shocking experience. And, and corrodes electronic objects. <laughs> really well. Yeah. So we have one sole electronic device survivor from our shipwreck. Wow, you've gone dark. It is, uh, we have gone almost entirely dark, which I have to tell you made for a somewhat more relaxing Vacation, unintentionally so, but it turns out that my little iPhone was the only survivor of our ship. Little iPhone that could, yeah, it stayed in there. I'm kind of proud. And it's still encrypted. (laughs) It is still encrypted. I want to. I have two object lessons. So Tammy's iPhone is the is the is the object is the little iPhone that could. I we had to get a message to my son Gabriel that we were okay, that but he wouldn't be able to reach us all weekend. So We've been I, in a shipwreck, but we're fine. Right. So I sent him a note from uh, a friend's iPhone, and he told him to call me on that phone. Um, and good little cyber hygiene kid that he is, he didn't call. And when I asked him why, he told me because he assumed it was a spear phishing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now that's the generational change we right. want to see. When he's in charge of OPM, there will not be. Um, there will not be. So my object lesson is also my iPhone, my new iPhone, which uh, Brookings has now replaced. I only got it replaced today. And um, the consequence of this has been that I have been shut out of all my accounts, of all my stuff for four or five days because I am so diligent about using two-step verification on all my accounts that if my phone gets swamped by a wave, uh, I am... You're I, dead in I, the water. I, I am dead in the water, and I go dark, <laughs> as Jim Comey might say. So I, if I have not answered your emails recently, I'm sorry. Um, I have gone dark. Gone dark. Do you feel more at peace, though? No. no. It's really <laughs> the stressful. Anxiety levels very <laughs> stressful. Um, so my object lesson is this wonderful uh, uh, use of a drone. A, a guy named um, Otto Diffenbach, who runs a company called Fly Guy Promotions, 
uh, took a it was it was um, a quadcopter I think and put the quadcopter drone inside of a little red doghouse with Snoopy and his aviator glasses on the top and we will put this video a link to the video on the sh- on the site but as you can tell Here's Snoopy on the ground. Wow. He's looking around, and there he goes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he is going after the Red Baron. That's so it's awesome. pretty awesome. Isn't that fantastic? He's going to fly in here more in a second. But, you know, he really, so he just, he's got this, you know, Snoopy flying around over the ground. You know, his head moves. The thing tilts. It's really, it's really quite impressive. Um, so this guy has actually done this before. Uh, he's made a flying R2-D2. And a flying TARDIS. That's the phone booth thing from Doctor Who, right? Which I don't watch. But, um, yeah, so he's going to take it and bring it to the uh, Comic-Con convention uh, in San Diego. Otto wow. Diffenbach. Hey, Mr. Diffenbach, send us a drone. Send us some drones to fly at Brookings. Send us the Snoopy drone. Robots at Brookings. Hashtag. <laughs> Keep on it. Lawfare uh, has been tweeting out at lots of robot companies to send us Robots. So far, we don't have any robots, though, so we're we're staying on that. Well, I hope that he will send, actually, the uh, the, the full thing, and you know, and maybe he can. He could come. He could come and demo it for us. Totally. He yeah, totally we do it out in Dupont Circle. He should. Oh, well, that's going to be risky, but <laughs> wouldn't be fun if it weren't. I guess. <laughs> um, so I thought that was actually uh, pretty cool. Um, uh, yeah, so that's the object. I, I want one for myself. Now. Very excellent. Yeah, a Snoopy one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that brings us to the end of the show. Um, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other show pages at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And when you download the podcast or subscribe, please leave a comment and a rating wherever you do. It really helps us out. Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Catherine Archuleta, who has a new job. No. no. <laughs> who needs a new job. Next week she'll be performing. <laughs> she'll be busking she'll be, next week. She will be busking and singing for as ever. No, of course, our music is performed, as always, by our good friend, Sophia Yan. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 